Another week, another Washington. In honor of another segment three about John David Washington after a Denzel week, what's your favorite Denzel performance? Uh, I'm Katie Rich, and I feel like the right answer is Malcolm X, but I haven't seen that movie in a long time, so I'm just going with the most recent one I've seen that wasn't The Little Things, and that's Philadelphia. I'm Matt Patches, and Katie was right. The right answer is Malcolm X. (laughs) Hey, it's me, David the Seven, and since favorite isn't best, the one that Mm, leaps to mm -hmm. mind is Deja Vu, because he makes that plot seem serious. That is his great skill. But favorite is best. dumb shit seem serious. Uh, Yeah, I'm David Ehrlich. Favorite is most definitely best, but I am going to go with He Got Game. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine, then, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello, and welcome to Fighting in the War Room. It's episode 335, and it's pandemic 47. It is the week of Wednesday, February 10th, 2021. That's the day that in 1940, Hanna-Barbera's Tom and Jerry was released by MGM into theaters. Even though I'm certain, I don't sure I've ever seen the Tom and Jerry on the big screen. I think most of us know it from television. Unfortunately, uh, again this year when the Tom and Jerry movie comes directly to HBO Max. Oh right! Unless we're well, not even going to do like theaters. yeah, all the HBO yeah. stuff is doing like a token theater thing. I'm not going to see it in theaters. I will watch it on HBO Max. That's working really well for my pandemic staying in. I'm watching That's... all the HBO Max. Stuff. Am I losing my mind or does the Tom and Jerry movie look funny? It's I, I, think it, the I think it has potential. It picked a style and it seems to execute it. From yeah, an I, I have Rabbit always, vibe. I have always maintained that the only thing missing from the Tom and Jerry cinematic universe was Chloe Grace Moretz, and so mm-hmm. this is uh, this herself. is big for me. Since uh, 1940, when it first debuted in theaters, <laughs> I, you can go uh, back into 1940, whatever, and quote me. It's there. <laughs> Well, uh, speaking of things that are going to premiere on HBO Max, we might be talking about Godzilla, or we might have a review. I don't know which. Suspense! Uh, I keep forgetting about this rule, or else I would have been more relieved to discover that we do have exactly one review. Uh, (laughs) By the skin of our teeth, Kong, put down that axe. Not this week, my friend. Dude, do do not hit anyone over the head with a mallet. (laughs) Uh, Thank you to MXSandy12, who says... The perfect fun and friendly movie pod that I need right now. Now, now, now. That's well, Lincoln. you have it. The world. Oh, I know that's Lincoln. Thank you. Is on fire. It's a great, a great opening scrawl to a, a scroll to a film. The world the is speak. on fire. <laughs> the world's on fire. The dead speak. The world <laughs> is on fire, and these guys are so lighthearted and joyous in their movie critiques. You can tell they are great friends, educated about the topics, and are having a ball. Listen. And fall in love. Mm. Uh, well, wow. that's a nice I, love that. I don't think anyone's review. turning off this podcast this week. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, a helpful review. I also think I would agree with that. This is a particularly depressing week for whatever reason. Some reasons I could put my what? finger on, Why? some I can't. Uh, this current week, what's, like yeah. starting this Monday. What's happening? What's going no, on? No, starting. I don't know. In the in the weeks since last we recorded, nothing. Uh, nothing worth reporting about? on air. But a lot uh, of snow. Oh my god! Whatever it was, but what a what a nice place to be. As tired as we always are on Monday nights, uh, nice to be. Scary here. how tired we are on Monday nights when we record this show. <laughs> it's the beginning of the week. Imagine a Friday fresh. show; we'd just be zombies. No, this is the thing. Mondays, I feel great. This is when daycare is back open. Like I'm. It's at home true, alone. but at the same time, there's something about like the the jolt of a new work week that can make Monday feel even if you're more energized than you will be on subsequent days. There's like a special kind of tired. See, my theory though is Tuesdays are the worst day. Like Mondays, it hits you hard, but then Tuesdays is when all the problems happen, and you have to yeah, fix them by Friday. Some something that I've I've noticed in the past eleven months or so is that uh, all the days are bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, well, I'm sorry your guy lost the, the election and uh, <laughs> oh, boy. well the Rangers are currently losing this game against the Islanders which is not quite at Trump wins the election level badness but it's uh, not as far off as you'd think wait I thought we just did football how is 
Hockey's on too. I mean, we Hockey's did not do football. On. You may have done football, but have I, we not uh, learned this there. lesson we'll this years of this podcast of David talking about the Rangers playing that it's always hockey season. True. It's somehow. always hockey season. Okay, well, continue leaving us reviews unless you want to hear Dave talk about Godzilla versus Kong. Although we definitely will talk about Godzilla versus Kong when it comes out, so you can only put it off for so long. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that'll come up with a new threat. <laughs> Leave us a review. All right, Pat. So the Super Bowl's got solutions to some stuff. <laughs> I do think the Super Bowl. Well, no. Let me backtrack. I do not think the Super Bowl has solutions for the film world and the Oscars, which is the provocative question I'm going to ask in this segment. But uh, I, I do have the questions, and I demand the answers from the rest of you. So I don't have the answers. But I am here to, after watching, well. Watching is – I put that in quotes. I kind of half-watched the Super Bowl this year. I've never felt mm. less invested in watching the Super Bowl than, than this year. Um, and it really has nothing to do with COVID. I just – I couldn't – well, I guess it does have to do with COVID. I couldn't keep up. I, didn't, I barely knew who was playing in the Super Bowl. Um, nothing is normal. Nothing went as expected. And yet – Everyone in my like feed was showing up. I watched half the game. It was a really terrible game, and I don't want to watch like Tom Brady win another Super Bowl. That doesn't sound like an interesting night. Then again, after half of watching it, I, I pivoted to Malcolm and Marie, and we'll get there. Um, so I don't know what <laughs> if I was yeah. making any good decisions on this Sunday you night. You really went from strength to strength. In that <laughs> yeah. But job. here's the thing, and Katie, I was thinking about you last night. I'm like, all right. No matter right. how dumb the Super Bowl is. 100 million people always show up to watch this shit. So what is the problem? Why why can the Super Bowl have a guaranteed huge audience every single time? It's a cultural event. We show up to watch the commercials. Most people are just watching commercials and like live tweeting at this point. No one cares about the game. What is the Oscars problem? Can't we gamify awards and like why why can't we the movies get an event on par with the Super Bowl. It just doesn't make. Why do the Oscars not matter at all? I'm kicking sand in your face here, but but the Super Bowl gets so many dummies to watch it every year. I don't get it. What's the problem? I I have two answers for you. I think maybe not a third. Uh, one, uh, the NFL is really really popular, more popular, and than the Ampas movies. are not. Yeah, the NFL is the most popular thing in America, probably. It's probably, like, the one, like, it was definitely, like, the most watched thing on television. It's certainly more watched than any of the movies that will be nominated for the Oscars this year and most years. And the second is that the Oscars is not anyone's job. Like, you're not going to see the actors at, like, the peak of their abilities at the Oscars. They're there to win an award. The The Super Bowl is the thing. Like, you, Tom Brady is doing the, the Oscars are for. The Oscars are literally your job. My job? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not there. I'm not programming the show. You should be. I mean, I know what I would want in the Oscars, and I would want it to have a, like longer speeches and like more musical numbers and all kinds of other shit that nobody else likes. So maybe I'm not the person to program it. But for. I think but that like, you're, that's ex- you're exactly on the right track. I mean, I think this is not an argument that we are inventing here. I think it's one that, that several people, including mm-hmm. maybe Vanity Fair's own Richard Lawson, have written about, which is that the Oscars, per Katie's point, need to just be more of themselves rather than this bizarre fixation with with being a shorter show and people calling out the fact that everything is running long on the airtime. Do it with the Super Bowl. Fly a fucking stealth bomber over the Kodak Theater. Make it this, like, completely it's horrific... It's definitely been the Dolby Theater for, like, 20 years. Whatever. <laughs> fly, fly, you know, do make it this completely jingoistic backwards patriotic display of dumbassery. I could not believe... I mean, I was so appalled. I always am watching the fucking Super Bowl, the pre-show, yeah, but whatever. Yeah, this was the year that did you in on that. Usually there are people, like, parachuting onto the field. And but if there is a, a maybe a liberal and less uh, uh, colonial, uh, <laughs> like, Oscars equivalent, to really just buff out the show, make it... Ha- make the pre-show start at 2 in the afternoon, have the analysts from right. Vanity Fair... Talking for hours. And and the big thing, and I know that they had made attempts to, to push back against this in recent years. I'm not sure what the current state of things are. But such a mistake way back when to prohibit commercials about film during the Oscars. 
that should be the most coveted airtime for commercials about the Oscars. It should just be a essentially like a Comic Con level thing for teaser trailers of prestige right, movies. Because the Emmys the do that. Other I think, I think you can. I think there are way. I don't think you're maybe allowed to air like advertising how many Oscars you've won. No, next, it used next, to be that you were not. It used to be that you were not allowed to air movie commercials. Full stop. During the this Oscars. year's no, Oscars, needs to take place in the anymore. in the fandom. What are we thinking I mean, here? It's already built. Think yeah. digital. <laughs> here's something in their favor. Like by the time the Oscars air in April, it's possible that you'll be able to say, "Here's a movie that's coming out in theaters in June," and like believe it. Unlike the commercial for Invite Shyamalan's movie, The Elder in the Super Bowl, you're like, "Okay, I mean, that's in theaters only." July, so. Sounds plausible. Yeah. Um, so they might have some strength there where they'd be like, hey, Bond, here's when it's actually coming out. So maybe there's room for optimism there that like the Oscars will become more of an event because by the time they air, the world will be waking up again. But David, I think you're onto something. My, yeah, my big questions here are like, what can the Oscars learn from the Super Bowl in order to attract a bigger audience? And, and I think we need, actually need more fanfare and more gamification, which is weird because we spend so long talking about the Oscar race and the Oscar movies, but not in a way that's actually gamified. Like, the movies should be knocking each other out. There should be 80 sure. nominees, and they should be slowly knocking each other out of the competition until the final Oscars night. And also, well, you're right. If you get nominated like, for an Oscar, then you also are thrown into Best Picture. I've got and then one if you word don't win you your category, yes. you get booted out of the Best yes. Picture category. I've got one word for you. Brackets. Yeah, more brackets. I mean, Gold or, Derby, our colleague uh, Chris Rosen just started working at Gold Derby. He and, did? Like, uh, he did. Hey, he did. surprise. That's I'm, exciting. I'm breaking news on the podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, and he, and, and, you know, they're gamifying it to the nth degree like they have charts and they have stats and they have predictions um but it's not mainstream it's just for the people who vote in the critics choice award so that they can figure out what to vote for oh i'm dissing my own uh, critics there also um, needs to be a uh, professional betting on sites like FanDuel about the oscars that would go a long I think there way is. I think there must be yeah yeah uh, I've always liked the Miss America idea where you make all the nominees stand on stage together and hold hands and then one of them gets to get up and give a speech and the rest of them have to like look. You have to like, stand like, there nice and deal yeah, with but it. I, I do exactly. feel like as a show, the Oscars are sort of fundamentally embarrassed of themselves. They yes. are. Yes. It, yes. It's And that's sort of the opposite ethos of the Super Bowl, which is so, you know, horrifically swung the other way. Um, every aspect of the Super Bowl is such a garish display of the worst of what America is. But the question that we're talking about here is how to bring some of that disgustingness to our beloved cinema. And I think you could, but and, like, uh, you need like the tribute to John Wayne, or you need the the tribute to uh, like, the mo- every era of movies. Every tribute, person, tribute to Batman. Yeah, the, everybody would tune have in. a big tribute to Batman. Like that would <laughs> actually definitely work. had tributes to like stuff like that before. Yeah, but, but they don't, but they do it condensed and without any meaning, and they need like eight hours of this stuff all day. I think the takeaway is to like let the Oscars lean into what they are. I mean, I've said for years, like let Netflix have the Oscars, let it be six hours long, come in, come out. Like make I, I don't for think it. I don't know why those things are mutually exclusive. I think letting I Netflix have the Oscars is a you you lose me immediately at let a streaming service host the Oscars. However, if we can find a way to have it be six hours long on television, I'm all there. I'm all there for it. I mean, I think that ABC's coverage should start at noon. Uh, and and steadily gain viewers. I mean, there are ways to do it. Do you it. think that the red carpet interferes with the Oscars' attention? That That is the part that's prolonged that actually no one cares about, and the pageantry of that somehow distracts no. from what people might actually care about with the Oscars. No, I think the fashion's a crucial component of it. I do, too. Yeah, like, it's I, the same, same thing Katie was saying before. If you're, like, wanting to show up to see somebody play, the fashion is showing up to see somebody play. You yeah. know, they're not yeah, going to I think we need more violence yeah. is the thing. Uh, okay, <laughs> like, okay. We need, we need to see Glenn Close, and I'm hard-pressed to think of another supporting actor, uh, another supporting actress. Amanda Seyfried. And Amanda Seyfried fucking tearing each other's faces off. On the red carpet. The red carpet should start white and be red by the time they're done with it. You're That's... saying this while watching a hockey game. I'm really worried about the influence that game. Oh, the, please. <laughs> they, have, they have all but cut fighting out of hockey. Um, See? In recent years. Every, but, every, and, every American institution is falling apart. <laughs> and it has gone. It's all shifted over to the Oscars. <laughs> well... The Oscars are in um, more than two months, so we got time to. Yeah, but this this question comes up because I'm like, I don't think anyone cares about the Oscars this year. Like, it feels pretty. Excuse me. Excuse me. Except you. Except me. No, I mean. And Chris Rosen. I just think that (laughs) 
people are not going to show up. People don't even know the movies. People don't even know what's going to happen. They haven't no, this year, gone this to year the is, movies. This year is going to be particularly dire, but I also think they're going to have to get creative with how to produce a show at all. So it could be interesting just for that. Yeah, it technically is interesting. That, that's what they should be good at is producing like a crazy show without any constraints. Well, clearly you can have a huge production if you do it on a football field. Yeah, that didn't <laughs> seem safe. Why did that seem safe? I mean, it's just a lot of people, even with all the cardboard people, like 25,000 people in any space, like they're deliberately and then have to like get in cars and drive home. Like, it's well, just not great. I mean, at least seven. I mean, the people who are vaccinated can't spread the virus, right? of course, but at least 7,000 of the people who were in attendance last night were vaccinated, which is something. But I think if we're um, going to take tips from the NFL, we have to go back to that game that Nickelodeon hosted where they just did CG overlays on the f- the field of like dumb things. That's, I like, thought oh, that was, was great with those joke. slimes spraying out of the yeah, end yeah. zone. That was I, I thought that was just a joke on SNL, and then I saw that it was a real thing that <laughs> SNL happened to be joking about. Because this was, of course, the first uh, any kind of football coverage I've watched all year, and it's about all I can take. I think the Oscars needs before. to be more like Double Dare, and people need I to be like literally fishing for Oscar statues sentence. out of a giant nose. <laughs> Everyone has to wear helmets and slide or around in chocolate pudding. We could simply nominate Tom Brady ten times in the last thirteen years, whatever the case might be. Is he uh, getting his own we, documentary I mean, series? It's this is going to happen. <laughs> uh, but, you know, and, and Tom Brady, unlike Amy Adams, actually wins when he shows up. So Yikes. maybe we can uh, put him in there. You know, of course, and I blame Amy Adams for that as if any of this is under her control. Um, but, <laughs> Amy Adams but, wins for Hillbilly Elegy. You're going to regret what you Well, Katie, said. you've gone on the record that Glenn Close is going to win for Hillbilly Elegy. So. Yeah, I was skeptical about it. And then uh, some other people talked me into it. And I was like, yeah, I thought I, that I was, am uh, not in a position where I can have any sort of informed I opinion at this point. I don't want to see that movie. She's the good part. Uh, she is the mama. She is no. not terrible Mimo? in a terrible. Mimo. Movie. Mimo? She, oh boy, she is the best part of that movie, and yes. that is still as backhanded a compliment as I can uh, imagine. Um, but not everything can be Sia's music. You know, it can't be an awards juggernaut for good cause. Um, I'm seeing that tonight and I am legitimately afraid. Uh, but yeah, I think that the Oscars need to just be less afraid of themselves and to own it a little bit more. I really do wince every year when somebody makes fun on stage about how long they've been going on. It's like, this is like, this is what you guys do. This is what you are. Own it or else all of America is going to be right there with you being like, why the fuck are we watching a three and a half hour show about hillbilly elegy? Also, this year, nobody's going to be in the room in person to, like, be shifting in their seats or, like, ready to get to the after party. So, like, lean in. Bring back Debbie Allen to choreograph some interpretive dances to the score. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think... Those shadow it, guys who make the, the yeah. objects from the movies out of their bodies. That's basically what yeah, they do with they can Super wear Bowl masks while show. they do what they're doing. Yeah. I just want to say that uh, as someone who forgets the Emmys as they're happening and only knows that they're happening that night or only because the site where I work covers them so exhaustively... Something about this year's Emmys continues to stick with me, which is how they gave the trophies by sending people in hazmat suits to all the nominees' houses and then essentially throwing a trophy at them if they happen to win. And uh, I would love to and see Robbie more. And Robbie Yusuf posting the video of the uh, the guy in the hazmat suit waving goodbye and walking away yeah. when he didn't win. <laughs> I, I think that kind of thing, if I were in the position of producing the Oscars, if I were Steven Soderbergh, I mean, we do have somebody who has an eye for that's right. Uh, putting it's going to be entirely uh, shot on iPhones. That'd be great. Why not? <laughs> I mean, seriously, if you're going to have like the cameras in people's houses, which you probably are, Holy like, teach them how to use their iPhones properly. Just have them mount like those long lenses you can put on the iPhone. That'd be great. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is, uh, I think the bar is definitely higher for the Oscars under you know, COVID protocols than it has been for some of the other award shows, and I hope they don't fuck it up. But if the Super Bowl can do it, so can the Oscars. No, well, the super. The weirdest thing yeah. about the Super Bowl that closes out was just how normal. <laughs> It felt. I thought that was very disconcerting. Um, yes, even if even if the people in the audience or some of them were vaccinated, I think that and cardboard. Yep. I mean, the, there's no I chance that the that. Oscars this year are going to feel like a normal Oscars, which is already a win in my book because um, it's just a bad message to be putting out there. But yep, yep. Mima. You think it's a bad message Meemaw. to have something that feels ordinary this is a whole nother i i think projecting the projecting the image that everything is you know ship shape and that we're having good old i mean football game that we used to be everyone's wearing masks on the field and stuff and and no they're not yeah everyone on the sidelines was yes no nobody in the commercials were nobody in the commercials was 
Does so, it, I don't, Drake from State Farm wasn't. Everything needs to reflect reality? I don't understand. I think if you're going to have the most watched television broadcast of the year and you have a problem where there's many people still not wearing masks and yeah. Cuomo says you can go eat inside a restaurant, it helps to be like, hey, this is not normal. Yeah, I mean, the show is in complete denial of COVID, which I just thought was weird, but whatever. He's strong, not one to settle down. You know he's Um, so, uh, this week, uh, for our mini-segment, we were talking briefly about a film that uh, only deserves the briefest of mentions, which is Goro Miyazaki's Earwig and the Witch, the first official Studio Ghibli film since when Marnie was there in 2014. It is also the first Studio Ghibli film, even though uh, Matt Patch's very elucidating interview with Goro Miyazaki would tell you um, to that, that it was uh, mostly outsourced to people who were not part of the Studio Ghibli stable, because they're all off working on Hayao Miyazaki's next film. Uh, this is the first Studio Ghibli film that was 3D animated from... Tip, stip, tip to tail, stem to sternum, whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I can only set this up in the same way that I started my review, which feels like the hackiest and most obvious way of doing it, but one that rings true for me, which is that if you've seen that video of Hayao Miyazaki watching um, the AI animation, uh, that it was a viral clip a few years ago, it's part of a documentary called Never Ending Man, and he watches it stone-faced and says that this is a... a a sin against life itself. Uh, that was absolutely <laughs> verbatim my reaction to watching Earwig and the Witch, which is a hideous, hideous eyesore. Maybe not the ugliest of uh, the 3D animated films, all of which, in my eyes, are a sin against God. Uh, but because it affects the Ghibli aesthetic, it is particularly hurtful uh, and, and and ugly in a way that you can you can see the difference between this and a pleasant looking film that is more evocative, that has more expressive animation, uh, more readily than you can when watching something like Minions. Um, and the fact that Casey Musgraves has a couple lines of all people <laughs> love her and uh, sings a song that is actually crucial to the plot, while that goes some distance to saving this from being just like. You know, a real train wreck. Uh, it's still a train wreck. I uh, I am hoping that, unlike uh, what Goro told Matt, uh, that this is uh, not <laughs> the first of many Studio Ghibli 3D films uh, over his father's dead body. I'm not talking about Rod Patches. I'm talking about Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, <laughs> How does Rod Patches feel about Studio Ghibli? Uh, Hayao Miyazaki I, I, coming at my dad during our interview is a very... <laughs> and I just as, before I pass the baton, I, I just want to say that as truly vile and and uh, criminal as this entire enterprise was, it, it was first of all made for TV. It was made for NHK. It aired on Japanese television. Had fewer resources to work with, and again, a lot of the talent was outsourced, and you can see that. But B, I think it would have been one of the worst Studio Ghibli films, if not outright the worst, even if it were beautifully animated in their traditional style it is just uh there's, there's not no story. story there it's incomplete there's no story it all feels like it's cobbled together it's, it's based on uh on a book by the same writer who wrote uh howl's moving castle um, Diana this one of her later yeah and this is one of her final books and was like semi-completed and um it all feels like cobbling together tropes that studio ghibli has uh done better in the past <laughs> what and, have you done uh, it is an abomination dave is now um, showing us pictures on the movie look and, at that mouth shape on that little boy it's like Katie's son. Like, <laughs> wow that's a terrible thing to say and I feel Why like we should, only be, my we should only be talking about this movie in Werner Herzog voice the way that he talks about nature or the future of mankind. An abomination, animation, <laughs> crude. Show me the baby. Patches, your thoughts? <laughs> my on, thoughts uh, were are, um, we had a discussion about Soul a few weeks ago. Uh, a good, a much better looking film. A film that I'm totally rethinking now that I've seen Earwig and the Witch. Wow. Um, not, not really. I mean, uh, that, that uh, movie Earwig is, and the Witch. Uh, bubbly and strange. <laughs> and some people on this podcast called it beautiful. And I thought it was, I thought, I mean, I think it's really slick in the Pixar way. I have seen beautiful CG films. Of course, David, when we were talking about it, said that was an abomination too. And that all CG, 3D CG animation is an abomination. And I couldn't help but hear his voice in my head as I watched earwig and the and the witch uh, just uh like a half render uh, a practice swing at making a feature length 
3D animated movie. It is, and it really was. I mean, David mentioned I spoke to Goro Miyazaki about this, and they said this is like practice, but they're doing it out in the open, and that's the most disheartening thing that we have to see the understaffed, underfunded attempt at a Studio Ghibli CG movie with really, again, no plot, the most irritating little girl main character, um, which is magic plot. It's like, and Goro Miyazaki said this, like they were looking for the most basic, by the book, Ghibli type story, young girl, witchcraft, magic, uh, coming of age. Like they're just checking boxes here and the whole movie feels like that's such a tremendous disappointment in the, in the context of, of Ghibli. But I, I, I can't help but think they're going to make a good one of these eventually if they keep trying CG. I mean, we've been watching a lot of Pixar in my house right now and looking at Toy Story, looking at the jump from Toy Story to Cars. Yes, Cars, a good movie. I got to put it out there. Looking back. Did you guys get to Cars 3 yet? We watched Cars 3 and it was a little too scary. Was, oh, actually, this is a whole other discussion for this podcast at some point, but Cars 3 is too photoreal. It's actually, it looks mm. too good and it scared mm. the shit out of my kid. Um, but Cars, which is more bubbly and, you know, 10 years after Toy Story, still looks really old now. Uh, it's it's quite shocking. Uh, looks better than Earwig and the Witch, but it's 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 aging and aging out of watchability. I think. And uh, but Pixar with every movie improving, improving, getting more photoreal or getting more. Uh, the design is is more detailed. Um, you think of something like uh, Monsters Inc., where like hair technology is so important. Actually, this year. I just noticed from the nominations from the tech Oscars that somebody is being – two different parties are being awarded for improvements in CG hair simulation. Mm. Like we're still going there. We're still working on the hair. It's a big thing. It's, it's everything that Studio Ghibli has never – been never succumbed right. to it's like it's, it's against every all of their ethos which is moving away from realism moving into imagination making these these lush vivid worlds that spring from the mind um and really the only visually impressive thing that works in uh earwig it are the the inanimate objects in the background of the of the house i mean it's like the photorealism that you can accomplish with cgi animation which is nothing to write home about in the context of the movie the movie it doesn't galvanize your imagination yeah, there's, in any there's way. There's no life in the characters, like, but if you yeah, take it's just not 10, hideous. 10 seconds to look at her, uh, the witch, the main witch's workshop that's like stinky and there's goop dripping everywhere. Like that is a good, that's Ghibli-esque detail, but you get none of that throughout the movie. And that's, it's really lacking. And also Earwig is, is an unrepentant little shit. She's not just stubborn just like so many great Ghibli Katie heroines would love it. are. Katie would love this child performance. She's just a little monster. A little scarred by Ponyo. Oh. Ponyo, Ponyo is. I'm trying to think. What's the nicest kid? Jacob Tremblay, uh, compared to this girl. <laughs> um, is he the nicest child? He's the, in the, the world. nicest little boy. Uh, <laughs> Earwig and the Witch. It's out on HBO Max right now. If you are a Studio Ghibli fan, I think you have to watch it just to know. Just to know. Just to um, reinforce why you are a Studio Ghibli fan. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then go back and rewatch them all. They're all streaming now. We're talking about Malcolm and Marie. First question: Did the white guy from IndieWire like it? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I it's was I was told months uh, before Malcolm and Marie came out and started screaming for critics that there was a reference to, uh, and I quote, "the white guy from IndieWire." And I know it doesn't do IndieWire any favors to say that, that there's, there, more there, there's more than one, one white guy in IndieWire. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, if you're referring to, to me or Cohen or, uh, 
uh, someone else. Who could say? But uh, I knew that line. Wait, was... did Sam Levinson call to tip you off? Just like, like you know, hey man, no, he I, actually... yell, I, I yell about you in this movie a lot. <laughs> he so. called to buy my life rights, and uh, <laughs> I sold it to him because I can't imagine they're ever going to be worth more than they are now. Um, but uh, yes, I knew that line was coming a while in advance. I did not know the context, and uh, boy, watching it the first time, did I feel like uh, I, I had been got that uh, uh, <laughs> it was unfortunate, but. Um, yeah, I mean, I felt I picked Malcolm Marie for the segment just because it felt inevitable. I felt duty bound. It is the only movie I think, I think slash hope uh, that is going to, if not name check me, then at least job check me this year. Um, and one is enough. You haven't seen Black Widow yet. Too much. So. I haven't seen. Black yeah, Widow. Black Widow is a big David Ehrlich rant. <laughs> <laughs> it is set directly after Civil War. <laughs> If Florence Pugh turned to the camera and was like, you know, actually, uh, just to break the fourth wall for a minute, that piece you wrote about my performance in Lady Macbeth way back when was really important to me. That would, uh, no, I would she's going to yell about No, no, you, you no. can't get compliments. No, that's too bad. Um, I thought that that would really resonate with the Marvel audience if she did that. And it's going to be Scarlett Johansson being like, and IndieWire thinks I can't play an Asian person. <laughs> <laughs> I would take that shout out at this point. Um but, uh, yeah, we have to talk about Malcolm Marie. I, if you don't know what Malcolm Marie is, it's a yeah, Sam Levinson say, film. What is it Malcolm is Marie? A, uh, it is Sam Levinson, who is now, I think, most prominent for, you know, in addition to being Barry Levinson's son, for creating Euphoria. He's uh, a visionary filmmaker, according to the visionary filmmaker, according to the trailer for Malcolm and Marie. Before Euphoria, he made two movies, one of which I only half remember if I saw I'm not even sure if I saw it but the name which I can't remember right now ironically oh another happy day patches there scarred by it Katie and Um, I saw this on the final day of Sundance when we stayed for like all 10 days I'll never forget it and then it won the Waldo Salt Award at Sundance Hated it. But I saw at a Sundance a couple of years later a film called Assassination Nation, which I have loathed more quickly than I can remember hating any other film at a film festival because it starts with these really tongue in cheek uh, trigger warnings that are sort of taking you know the piss out of the idea that anyone i mean whatever it's complicated we don't have to get into it right now but that is a movie that um is all sizzle and no steak and really just annoying me for two hours um and felt super precocious in a way that put me off for watching euphoria which i understand has a lot of merits that his other work doesn't and then i actually watched the uh first of the two euphoria covid specials which is really pared down and it's just the great coleman domingo and zendaya in a diner and i actually thought in a vacuum that it was really strong television but malcolm and marie is the other thing that sam levinson made during the covid break they shot it in a house um in wherever california why is the name escaping me it's someplace somewhere in northern california no it's, it's it's yeah carmel and uh you know, particular house, some renown. Um, it is, I guess, ostensibly kind of this ode to, to classic Hollywood. It's got sort of a John Cassavetes vibe in it, even though it might seem like an insult to Cassavetes. It also seems like sort of an objective point of reference. Um, it is stylized in some ways to feel like a, uh, a classic film. There are William Wyler references in addition to uh, not-by-name David Ehrlich references in the first <laughs> couple seconds. Some of the only places that you'll see us uh, me and William Wyler reference together. Uh, two Jews happy together in Malcolm and Marie, but um, uh, and John David Washington plays Malcolm, who is a uh, filmmaker on the rise, is about to sort of pop, coming from the blowout screening of a film that he has made, inspired by uh, his girlfriend Marie. Uh, he's played by Zendaya and her struggles with drugs. So she was a drug addict when they met. And he made the cardinal sin of not thanking her. He chad her, essentially. Or I guess he Hillary mm. swanked her. Um, yeah. And he did not thank her before the premiere. Now, just as a sidebar... Or as Sam I'm sorry, Levinson would say, he Sam Levins her. This is true. It's based, on, based on a true story. This is going to be a long and rambling segment filled with monologues, much like the film Malcolm and Marie. <laughs> uh, but uh, I just want to point out in this context, because I don't know if there was room for it in my review, which uh, it seemed like there was room for everything, because I said 1,600 words where I said nothing, um, that there's only one circumstance, and I pose this to my industry friends here, where the premise of this movie could possibly take place. Because... There's, there's really only one thing on the calendar where there would be a glitzy world premiere of a film in Los Angeles, a film like this, a, a awards-baiting A24-adjacent drama um, where 
trade critics, like the critic from IndieWire, like the critic from the, the white guy from Variety, the white lady from the LA Times, uh, would be at this screening. You got Brooklyn, you got Staten Island, you form it together, it's a fist. I, it's the same pattern. I'm feeling it. But, uh, and, and that's at, uh, an AFI premiere. It's the only scenario under which I can possibly see this movie happening. I just want to put that out there. Um, and uh, and even in that case, if it's an AFI premiere, it's probably going to be like a Clint Eastwood movie. Can it be like Cannes um, and that not be no. taking place No, in because we all would have reviewed it out of Cannes. Um, so, and the house in Carmel is clearly in LA. I mean, it's, it's in Los Angeles. It's yeah, but they not, don't say that. It's, I mean, it's, this, a, it, it's happening in LA. It's all of this seems super important. Somehow. Anyway, yeah. David, did you like the movie? I, yes, I, I posed a very clear question. <laughs> Katie, if a movie is going to call me out, I feel like I'm entitled. You're not the only white guy at IndieWire. It didn't call you out. <laughs> a white guy at IndieWire. A patches. It'd be like, you know, you have to speak on behalf of your family here. Did, um, did the patches, did Clan Patches like the movie? I feel, I just want to say that I... I I in my C plus review where I really feel like the movie is trying to talk, it talks itself into a corner. Um, I didn't finish my rant by the way, which is that he, they shot it in COVID protocol. It's all in the house. They sold it for thirty million dollars to Netflix, um, and it's a big big deal. And it's supposed to be a major awards player. Anyway, um, they I, I I really tried I think more than subsequent reviews and people who watched it when it finally premiered did to give Sam Levinson. The benefit of the doubt, even though I've always been actively put off by his work, I think he's a really easy target in addition to the sort of like the, the nepotistic angle. There is just the um, the look at me element of it, which is something I pounced on in my review. It's as pronounced as it was in Assassination Nation and Euphoria, where uh, like Malcolm, who comes home saying he knocked the audience the fuck out tonight, uh, that there is the sense that he can really only be happy if he is a showman, if he's constantly calling attention to his own work um, and never really lets anything speak for itself and that makes watching two hours of two people one of whom is completely loathsome yell at each other a completely exasperating experience even before you get to all the themes and ideas that it is dealing with themes might be too generous a word but the ideas that it is banding about um, in its harried way not dissimilar from how we're talking about it now um, it, it John David Washington as talented an actor as he is and as happy as I am to see his rise to fame uh, thinking that you know despite the fact that 10 it gives him new character. He's strong in that of monsters and men. He's excellent. Uh, and here he's a very good actor, but he is playing an insufferable human being. And the movie does not seem to realize to me anyway, how far beyond the pale he is as a human being. I mean, like truly a monster. Um, and Zendaya really just scowls the entire time and has the, the moral upper hand, which she uses to her advantage, but it's not a particularly interesting look. I think I gave, just because of the enthusiasm at all, the chemistry between them too much credit, but going back to it, I, I just found it kind of simplistic and trite, and uh, I thought that the context in which IndieWire is mentioned is an interesting one. I think talking about the uh, soft bigotry of politicizing all stories about people of color and black stories, um, because those are the only matrices that the people from outside of the experience are willing to put them in this environment is an interesting idea to play with. I don't know if tackling it straight on uh, is the most interesting way to do that uh, at rant length over and over and over again, even though it's fun to see another character sit there and take the piss out of Malcolm for giving that rant. But uh, I, I mean, this movie was truly uh, me pulling my hair out to watch and even more so to write about. Um, it feels like very masturbatory Levinson wrestling with himself. And just to end my rant, I'll just say, you know, I really I think why it was so hard for me to write about this was because I really one thing I try and I probably fail at this all the time, but I try to avoid in my criticism is assigning uh, presuming intent uh, and trying to write about what the filmmakers were trying to do, because that is, to me, one, something we cannot know. And it's very arrogant, I think, most of the time to decide what that is for them. But it's also the least interesting part of the experience a lot of the time, because at the end of the day, uh, art is only as valuable as it is to the people who receive it. And uh, I, I, there's, this movie is very difficult to talk about without people projecting all sorts of intent, especially because the movie often talks in the language of its own intentions. But uh, I... I think I turned myself inside out by trying not to do that as best I could and ultimately kind of failed, but uh, not as badly as the movie does. Anyone, take it away. Why do, why Can do I go think, next? Why is it so difficult to talk to avoid talking about intent with this movie? I don't... 
because the movie, every single line of this movie is sort of announcing its own intent over and over and over again. And it lays a trap for critics who try to determine intent. But I think that was overplayed. I I have to say, as someone who was that angle of it, of like, you know, it's trying to to be critic proof in its way because it's baiting critics into being like, well, they really got my number is, I don't know. I can only speak for myself. If I were the white lady at the LA Times who really doesn't exist, they do not have a white lady uh, critic no, on staff. No, she definitely exists. It's Katie Walsh who wrote a freelance oh, pan sure. of Assassination Nation. Yeah. Okay, that's true. Uh, it, which is, I... I wanted to go next because I don't. I did not hate this movie. I don't uh, want to wait. All, I, I don't want to eliminate. I don't want to erase been Katie Walsh. Really, I have been so mad about it on Katie Walsh's behalf. Uh, Katie Walsh. I put this together. Wait, Kate Arthur and Katie Walsh. Yeah, Kate, different people. Katie different Walsh. people who do different things. Anyway, yes, but about fabulous. <laughs> Katie, so what? what you you kind of liked this movie. I gave, I expected to fully hate it because uh, <laughs> uh, because of having seen another Happy Day mostly and like oh, having okay. watched one episode of Euphoria and not being able to get on board with it and the premise and everything. I thought there was something captivating about the early you know scenes where he's kind of you know the camera's following him as he dances around the living room and she's so not on his wavelength and there are there's a lot of well written speeches and dialogue moments between the two of them. I think the two of them are good together in a lot of those scenes even as he becomes more and more loathsome as the film goes on I, I think if it had been 45 minutes it could have been a really strong exercise at an hour and a half or whatever it feels fairly interminable um i think i was really six minutes. real long um but i do feel like i i saw it early and i think i was inclined to be generous to it just because i didn't really know what it was going to be i didn't know how other people were going to feel about it and it's been really interesting to watch i think as david was saying like earlier reviews were like okay well here's what's interesting about it to the we get to the point of this weekend where it's like oh jesus christ fuck this movie girl leave him <laughs> um which might be the logical way for this film to develop but it has been really interesting to watch I mean, the i'm really is- mad about katie walsh the- being like having an entire really hateful rant aimed at her. I, I actually have to be honest. I, I did not realize, I did not put two and two together. Uh, I'm not super familiar with Katie Walsh's work. No, and it doesn't name check her, but it's... it's no, but the obvious. idea, I was sort of working on the impression that they... Because when I think of the there LA was Times no credit, white woman. Absolutely. I'm thinking of Justin Chang, um, and I, I think that only further sours my opinion of the movie um, because I was like, well, they can get away with this. Like, I mean, because she is such a target. This not yeah. so hypothetical white lady at LA, the LA Times. Yeah. Um, that you know, I was like, well, maybe they're just they're they're shooting at shadows here. But no, that's that's repulsive. But I do want to say that when I yes, heard they call this her Karen, the, I believe in the movie. The, yeah. <laughs> This rant at the very beginning of the movie, I, I I was not offended. I was not like, oh, my hackles are up. Um, I just felt like, well, you know, this is an interesting thing that critics do have to deal with. And I think it's always, um, even if it's in less than favorable or generous terms, interesting when artists in their art engage with the nature of criticism and it's not Birdman. You know, this did feel at least a half step above that in terms of the humanity yeah. that was affording our profession. Um, and but, uh, I, there it, was a punching down aspect to it, especially yeah. when it was connecting to a real person. Like, critics are not the people with power in this scenario, even for this, like, hypothetical up-and-coming filmmaker, and, like, especially for Sam Levinson. Like, you are not, like, some hero by striding against critics by doing this rant. Like, you are punching down at someone who's paid a freelance rate to write film. But less than, like, the punching down, it's really boring because it's inside baseball. Like, who can care about this stuff? I, I it's, it's not about art to me, and I'm not going to prescribe, like, the, the intent of Sam Levinson I'm I'm solely judging off like what is the dramatic value of these conversations and ultimately I didn't have many takeaways from this movie it's it's not about art or it's not about art in a deep way and it doesn't seem to be about the relationship um well, it's just like everything is at such a distance and they're so motor mouth that there's no time for anything to really sink in I mean I really like there's a scene where Zendaya talks about her story being used and her her inability to tell her story her true struggle with drugs like that stuff is interesting but there's no room to breathe and it doesn't yeah really there's a drill line down where, deeper into that well actually i don't want to say what the line is because it's like one of the only lines that sort of i found piercing in the movie oh, and please, towards the end. i'm sure you're good as, as a diet <laughs> um <laughs> in this that. with this material who couldn't be but uh i i think the there there, that is something that the movie does better than other things, which is talk about um, the primacy of experience. I mean, it's a conversation we have all the time about people telling other people's stories. And I think of all the things that this movie dances around, um, one that it gets close to some sort of truth that I felt like I could touch was this idea of uh, her story being taken away from her. But the movie I thought about most 
um, at least of recent films in regards to this was I'm thinking of ending things in especially related oh, to what of course oh sure especially re- related to what Patches <laughs> was just saying um, and the element of the movie that he was talking about because I mean for me it, it is kind of a movie about uh, that sort of self-absorption that ego that processing everything through your own emotional experience and you're dealing with an out of control narcissist in this movie in the case of who Malcolm who believes he can tell her story better than she could live it essentially that's interesting yeah and uh, you know he does not see her really. I mean, she is a sort of uh, this this thing for. She's a manifestation. She's something to project his own career and, and even path through and he, something to he use. Like even like her, he loves her or something. Right. right. And all he all she really yeah. wants is for him to say thank you, um, which was obviously very triggering for her at the start of the movie that he neglected to do that. Um, you know, and I think, you know, Katie can laugh at me for referencing I'm thinking of anything. things. I do hmm. think the parallels are there. But, brand. Uh, I, I agree that the parallels are there. I but, uh, but that is a movie that, you know, was way too um, abstruse for a lot of people and how it uh, approached some of the same ideas. But, oh boy, would I rather take that more roundabout uh, approach where you can really understand the texture of these things than just having John David Washington scream them at you while Zendaya tries to <laughs> sink into her bathtub. Well, for Dave, Dave hated I'm thinking of ending things. So how about Malcolm and Marie, Dave? Um, improvements? No, it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> I saw Dave having a meltdown about this movie. Over like the weekend it starts Twitter, with so. the script. That's bad, just to begin with. The performances are good. But then it's a movie that's arguing about cinema that absolutely wastes the fact that it's a fucking movie. If this was an argument between an abusive man and his uh, young, much younger girlfriend, he's trapped in a relationship because they entered it when uh, you know she was not in the best place, uh, and that had to take place over a one-night argument, that's a stage show. And that's how it needs to be, like, structured. If you're going to do this whole, like, dramatic unity of a single day, which is, like, way back to platonic basis of drama, then you choose certain plots for that. You don't have an argument with a gaslighter and a woman that we like because there's no chance to step out of this night and see something else that we could feel is actually true. So what we're left with is a very good actress playing a woman who's being verbally abused for almost two hours and a very good actor who is playing an asshole, and he seems to know it because it comes through in his performance very clearly, but the movie itself doesn't know it. So because of that, it doesn't actually execute anything that it's trying to come out. It's this weird masturbatory exercise. And I'm not even against monologues and montages as a cinematic form, but... They have to have, like, some sort of weird connection to each other. There's this one shot in Malcolm and Marie where they stop monologuing for a little bit, and we stick with Zendaya's face as we watch her get upset again, and they come back, and they're back into another series of monologue arguments, which seems to work in the moment in the movie because you're a fantastic actress, but on the page, that's fucking dumb. Anybody who read it would be like, something should be in here. You can't just say her expression changes and hope that you could roll the dice on this actress who you also control her television career. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just really bad. Um, I was like, how is this? This is my first Sam Levinson experience. And I was like, how, how yes, could... Yes, they're not films, by the way. When we're talking about Sam Levinson, they're experienced. <laughs> well, like Euphoria or any of the other movies. And so I'm like, how could this person be making movies? And I figured out he was related to Barry Levinson after having seen Malcolm in the Middle. Uh, Mal- mm, Mal- Malcolm, Malcolm in the Middle. Malcolm in the Middle. <laughs> Malcolm in the Middle. Both. Uh... After having seen both. So it's just like, I, I, like, that was a somewhat of course... And then you get like this weird feeling where like if I'm going to engage with the movie on its level, I should really try to be like, you know, don't frame the director with this and, you know, uh, avoid all the critic traps that he throws down because, you know, I'm like smarter than that. But I don't have to, you know, sift through every turd to find the piece of change that I might have swallowed. I could just flush the whole thing down. So Malcolm Marie, meh. (laughs) Not anything worthwhile. It's kind Dave, of a waste of time. Better cinema. or worse than I'm thinking of ending things? Worse than I'm thinking of ending things. Because cool. wor- I'm thinking there of ending things uses fucking cinema. I might not have liked the story, but it's well written and it I, uses cinema. I've got to stand up for this movie a little yeah. bit, I guess, and you're forcing me to, and I don't want to, but yeah, what are okay, you talking about that it doesn't use cinema? The photography. 
is often very beautiful. There's like cameras. Why is it in black and white? Why? I don't know. Yeah. To be stark and more intense. I, I, it's just yeah, for the same nice reason looking. that for the same reason that the they do the old fashioned uh, credit block in the beginning right. of the movie. You know, it's all an affect. But the same I, reason Roma's in black and white. Yeah, it's, this is know. just trying to be. Uh, who's afraid I mean, of but Roma Wolf. has like amazing Nichols. This is like a lot listen. of photography. This is shot in one house at night. Style. For, they're going to be a lot, a lot of movies shot in one house at night coming up, Dave. So we yeah, all have I to know. get used I, to I, it. I, I, I'm not saying that they're like any of these things are instantly bad, but it's the layering of all of these things. I don't know what it's contributing as a movie. Well, that's like Katie true. was I mean, saying. It's, it's, it's like a 45 nothing. minute. I think it, the problem is the foundation is is worthless. Um, there's like you know, maybe I, I, maybe like the last five to ten minutes of it are cinematically okay because you have some cool uh, angled mirrors as they're like passing through each other and then they're finally you know, like reunited yeah. in the yeah. frame of the bedroom like that's fine i get it but you can't like have somebody dance through a house and then have like two locked off shots of him eating macaroni and cheese for 20 minutes <laughs> yeah, but it just and make me feel pops it up it's really interesting that's a I performance thing that's a waste of the fucking movie <laughs> I don't want to. I thought the the him glooping up and the performance of it was all just like so cartoonish and exaggerated. I didn't think really he was very good in this movie. Level. I'm I'm gonna take yeah. issue with the the congratulations to the actors. Like they're oh, no, he's, he's overplaying it. Every he starts at ten and can't go anywhere, and yeah. then she is so the dialogue is so stilted, and she she's just not bringing it. And she's better in Euphoria. I, I agree. This just does not work. I was a little too kind to especially her performance in my review. I think that. Um, you know, I I think he he's his problem is that he makes the same fatal mistake I think in concert with Sam Levinson, which is just misjudging this character. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and it's so wildly misjudged that I think it disempowers Zendaya from being able to do anything. And other there was a lot of weird talk about the age difference, which I didn't. I don't think that's a problem necessarily, but her character feels like she's been living no, with this. No, it's a problem. So in she, it's a problem. She feels in this too story. young for the character. Not the relationship. No, they no. say she like got clean at twenty, but I think it sets up a problem that like he is a grown man who got in a relationship with a teenager who is yes, addicted to yes. drugs. It's a problem like, in this story, and it's that's not a power a dynamic. But it's, it's, like it's, never it's a troubling happened. power dynamic that can like yeah, solve in a relationship. Totally it's it's famously never happened in Hollywood before, so it definitely. No, I'm not saying bounds. it hasn't happened, but like if we want to like root for this couple, it's a really troubling power dynamic. The only thing I wanted to root for was this fucking movie to end and not to have to write about it. But unfortunately, I only got one of those two wishes, and only. David, I don't want you to like take back all the things that you said about it to be kind to it, though, because I think engaging with the value of it is important. I was literally saying, as you said that, that I was waiting, rooting for this fucking movie to end. Um, but I, 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 I do want to say that, like, I, I, I really hesitate to celebrate style for its own sake, especially when that's the, really the only tool that I feel Sam Levinson has in his arsenal a lot of the time. But um, there are shots in here, even when he's quoting himself already, do three films that do his body of work, uh, that in if there were content to support them, I would have found very engaging. I mean, the shot of him at the beginning of the movie where he's dancing around the kitchen, the camera is outside the building and it's moving with him and coming back to find Marie standing there and stewing and Malcolm is completely oblivious. Very effectively conveys uh, the, I mean, not all that complicated emotional readout that's happening between these two characters right now. It's fun. It's interesting and makes use of a space that a lot of other filmmakers would let just sort of be dead and stagnant. It is very, very similar to a shot from Assassination Nation that was used in the climactic, completely masturbatory uh, sequence of that movie, which is a big home invasion shoot. Um, but like, it's like he does see the space in interesting ways and gets more out of this house. And I think so many other filmmakers who are going to be making single location movies will over the next little bit of time. Um, I just wish that it was in service of anything that made me want to actually be in that house. Yeah, I've been thinking camera. about so much about the script. I mean, look, to your point, Dave, if... Um... If I had a problem with people just monologuing about nothing over and over again, I would I would not be podcasting with David for the last ten years. Okay, but right. um, boom, uh, <laughs> suck it, white guy. There, you are. I am trying to put my finger on like why this script feels so DIY. Why does it? Why did it transport me back to sophomore year in college, watching like writer, <laughs> dramatic writing students put on plays? Like it really has that it, quality, and I and I wonder. And I, you know, I was scanning Twitter this weekend, looking for reactions 
to this movie after watching it and wondering and there was a, there's a lot of people sticking up for it and I, I think there's a lot of younger people sticking up with for, for it and euphoria is a, 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 truly it's a phenomenon right now I think it's really really popular with the younger generation and I wonder if the kind of like raw amateur amateur but confident energy to this movie this very surreal feeling um is resonating with with young people if this is a movie for people who are you are saying like this is 16 like 16 years old this is gen z kevin smith yes yeah I, yes. I don't i don't know if i have certainly not as as cutting as what dave just said if i have the words to put my finger on why, nor do I want to imply that what I was writing in high school is at the level of what Patches was writing in college, but my exact thoughts that I wrote down in my notebook were I this was not writing these me. plays. Let me be clear. I was having oh, to I watch abso- them because I was dating a writer. Come I on. absolutely <laughs> was, and uh, I'm only saying we should put on one of your plays. That. Let's start a we should, I mean, I, I, this was my thing in high school. This is what I would do. I would write for, oh. it was called Magic Circle, and uh, it, it sure was an was. annual festival of student-written, like, one-scene things and uh, it was my time to shine and I feel like maybe things that were really holding me back from from sticking the knife into the jugular of this movie rather than just like sort of pressing it against its neck was was that I could see so much of the shit that I would write 20 years ago yeah. <laughs> in in this but uh, I, I and I'm not even. It's not even an argument that I'm a, a writer at the lofty quality of someone like Sam Levinson. Only that the tone of the writing, the pitch of it, mm. was something that I, I recognized for myself from when I was much, much younger. And I, it, it was. It, it's just so funny hearing Patches make that reference, as broad as it might be, because it's exactly what it took me back to. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's like the self-absorption, the sort of uh, solipsism of the writing. It's like the too clever by half. I mean, the word solipsism is is you crucial to this movie. movie. Yeah. yeah, they talk about like your solipsism. What's the line? It's like, you're so solipsistic, you don't even... I can't even remember. I, I, to Sam Levinson's credit, it stuck in my head for about 24 hours, and then I forgot it. But I got um, to say, though, this movie became dismantled for me um, watching... Amanda Gorman performed poetry before the Super Bowl, and I've been <laughs> watching a lot of Amanda Gorman videos of her performance, and I, I think a lot about like, does the dialogue need to mean everything or mean anything when we're watching a movie? And the answer is no. For me, like a performance can carry a lot of words and just be used to make like instrumental sounds, and that's part of a performance. So uh, David, uh, John David Washington could just be barfing out nonsensical words, and it could still it could still mean something if the tones of it makes emotional sense. And I feel like Amanda Gorman's words are much deeper; they do connect on a thematic and a, and a political level often. Um, but she's yeah, also a great. Former. Like she is don't Amanda Gorman in with Malcolm and Marie. No, I'm, I'm saying Amanda Gorman is the is the solution to Malcolm and Marie. Yeah. Like if Sam Levinson had a poetic mind, he could write a movie like this. If he had a playwriter's playwright's mind, he could write a movie like this. But I think he has a provocateur filmmaker's mind, and he can't write this shit. And if he gonna if he's gonna use like post woke messaging as uh, and identity politics as a crutch. Uh, in with the behind his like two black actors, I it's almost offensive like how stupid this movie becomes at times. I was there's, just cringing so hard. Me, Zendaya says did it for clicks in this movie. Okay, I'm, I don't take oh, it personally, her? but holy no, shit, it's just no, bad. The, the line the line that will echo in all eternity from this movie for me is when is part of a motormouth rant. Malcolm refers to Zendaya as a level one boss. Of a video game yeah. when he's talking about like how easy uh, there's she is too to much push Mountain Dew running through the veins of this movie. <laughs> but there's part of me that's really, even though you know, I feel like Gandalf, like you know, I would want to use this power for good, but through me, I would exert a great evil that that is envious <laughs> of <laughs> Sam Levinson's call yes. it arrogance, no, call it confidence. We all are because his, we could just if we could just make a movie. But not just his and resources, but like his thirty million dollars. Like maybe, maybe it's you know most people would chalk it up, and I'm I'm fine with this. Would chalk it up to the privilege with which he was raised. But there's a gene that I am lacking that would allow me to be like. This is the story that I'm going to write. I'm going to speak for for these people, and I'm not just talking about black characters. I'm talking about the way that he inserts his voice into these characters and the ideas that he has them batting around. Especially, you know, even involving not just race but also criticism and talking about our side of the fence. Um, and it's it's like there's a part of me that couldn't 
write something even in the same arena of as this because I would constantly be you know, questioning myself and stopping myself right. and putting it back in a drawer. And maybe that's why I am uh, not a filmmaker <laughs> and he is selling this movie for $30 million. And that's, I, I, I don't want to say I admire that confidence because I but don't, it, but I am jealous it does of build it, in his ability the, to harness it. The kind of like the, the, the parachute for himself, which is like Malcolm is screaming about taking risks. We need to encourage people to put themselves on the line to fail and I mean, he doesn't say "fuck Marvel," but that's essentially the, the <laughs> idea here, right? Um, the vibe. So I, I, I don't, I don't want to invest in the argument that he's built like off ramps for this movie to to protect himself from reviews. I don't think he needs to protect himself from reviews. That's the most foolish thesis of this movie that the critics. But you will know, have he will anything. definitely be reading them. <laughs> he's already read. I'm sure the sequel's in the works. But uh, oh boy, why? <laughs> I, I, why just, this movie I, goes there, what entertainment value it could possibly have for normal people, I don't know. I don't just know. to connect this to our episode from last week, a movie that I watched today and just wrote a review about, a much more positive review, uh, by a filmmaker named Shion Sono, who made Prisoners of the Ghost Land, the Nicolas Cage Sundance movie we talked about. He is uh, he is not someone who usually only has one movie out in the uh, ether at a time, uh, even post-heart attack. Uh, a heart attack that, you know, he was telling the film stage in an interview, he was like legally dead for a minute during pre-production on Ghosts of uh, uh, Prisoners of the Ghost Land. Um, he's made a new movie called uh, The Red Post on Escher Street, which has, in the way that a lot of Sono's earlier films did, this like really scrappy, we're going to make a movie, gonzo vibe to it, which is kind of in its own rarefied way what Sam Levinson is doing with uh, Malcolm and Marie. And they are actually not about entirely dissimilar things. I mean, uh, Red, Escher, Red Post on Escher Street, it, which you can all watch uh, for a $12 rental fee um, on part of Grasshopper's Film Club and through the Japan Society, um, is uh, a film about this, this director like Sam Levinson. He's an indie director. He begrudgingly decides he's going to make a uh, studio film. And his only condition is that he wants to cast it entirely with amateur actresses. So he puts out a casting call and the movie is about all of these dozens and dozens of young women who come. And it's just like the overlapping stories faster than uh, Robert Altman overlaps dialogue and things go truly insane. It's really ends up being about because they all end up being extras. It's sort of about how um, everyone is an extra in somebody else's life and nobody should act as an extra in their own. Uh, And it's just like there's a spirit of that. They're not going for classic Hollywood, of course, but there's a spirit of that, particularly in how it attacks the complacency of the Japanese film industry today, which is why I started talking about this relation to Sam Levinson taking on the Marvels of the world and whatnot. Um, it's just like so much more alive and vital and plays with all these ideas in a way that feels a lot more volatile and because they're less controlled and uh, it, it feels like anything could happen in a moment's notice. It really feels like they're playing with fire in a way that even the most explosive moments in Malcolm and Marie don't. And I think there's just such a wide gulf that you can see if you're able to watch these movies in close succession that speaks to why someone like Shion Sono is such a, a maverick and such an exciting filmmaker all the time and why somebody like Sam Levinson makes movies like this that all feel like high school writing exercises or college writing exercises if you're being generous. And uh, so I, it's called Red Post on Escher Street. You can watch it, as I said, on Grasshopper Film Club and through the Japan Society. If you, it's a great entryway to Shion Sono's films. Recommended. Uh, That does it for this week's show. Uh, Next week, we're talking about Judas and the Black Messiah, which premieres on HBO Max this weekend. So everyone watch it. Back to HBO Max. You burned us, Netflix. Giving us Malcolm and Marie <laughs> and the Night I mean, Ripper saga. Like, bad Netflix. Bad. We, def- we definitely still have a few more months of uh, whatever's on the streaming service is the thing there that there is to talk about. And, you know, we don't have to leave our house. So, good for all of us. Uh, in the meantime, tell the people who you are. I'm Matt Patches, senior editor at Polygon. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. We have a website. If you're sitting around working from home, maybe, or maybe you're out and about, I don't know, go on your browser, your phone, go to fightingintheworldroom.com. You can listen to the episodes right there. Uh, I'm David Ehrlich. I am one of, I'm a white guy from IndieWire. You can find me <laughs> writing about films on IndieWire and on Twitter at David Ehrlich. Uh, on 
You can also find me on CNN.com reading this tragic article about how Chris Hemsworth's stunt double is struggling to keep up with the star's weight gain as they prepare to shoot Love, Thor, Love, and Thunder. He's just putting on too much mass too fast. Uh, and poor Bobby Holland Hampton is struggling to keep up. Yeah, he's patches. Um, if you would read the reporting, he's trying to be the biggest Thor ever. And uh, uh, poor Bobby Holland Hampton, uh, which is a difficult name to say once, alone five times fast, is. Uh, not is, is struggling to keep up and really eating for him has become unpleasant and I think we can all relate to that um, you can find us all on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room and uh, I don't know be nice to each other don't be a Malcolm be a Marie <laughs> and I'm Dave Gonzalez up until Natalie Portman becomes Thor it's still the smallest Thor ever uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DA7E you can also listen to me on the Storm a Lost Rewatch podcast where we're in season five and things are getting serious. Uh, and I'm Katie Rich. You can find me at VanityFair.com on the Little Gold Men podcast where uh, uh, this week we're talking about, I don't know, the Critics' Choice Awards and some other stuff. Awards! The Oscars! They matter to us! <laughs> so if you listen to Patches say that no one cares about the Oscars and it made you mad, listen to Little Gold Men. We're a place for you. See, I'm doing work for you. Uh, yeah, thank you. Um... You can find me on Twitter at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. And we're all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you can drop a many uh, paragraph rant. Uh, or you can just Please don't. Speak around question, which, which will always light your own question. Uh, what's your favorite Denzel Washington performance? Thanks for listening, and we'll be back talking to you next week. You won't be around next year. My rap's too severe. Kick it past flavor in your ear. Cook up the brand new flavor in your ear. Time for new flavor in your ear.